From Luminary Media, WNYC Studios, and Stable Genius Productions, this is Note to Self. On a bright, crisp day in New York City nearly five years ago, I did something a little strange. I got a folding chair and set it up on a busy street corner. And I watched and counted. I held a couple of those little clicky things like museum security guards use. And every time I saw someone with their cell phone out, I clicked. My goal was to observe people, collect a little data, and see how our devices were changing our everyday habits. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self, the tech show about being human. And as you'd imagine, I saw a lot of people that day texting, talking, or just gripping their phones. I stayed out on the sidewalk until I had counted a thousand people. And in the end, one out of every three was somehow using their phone. One out of three. I mean, at the time, that was five years ago, right? That seemed like a lot. Now that just seems, just seems normal, right? I mean, actually kind of low. Because now most of us are on our phones. What else would you do while you're walking to work? Just walk? Well, that's pretty boring. <laughs> well, that day got me wondering, though. We used to just walk down the street, and now we do that and all kinds of other stuff on our phones. Do small changes in our behavior like that actually have bigger consequences? I wanted to find out, and I asked you, dear listeners, to help me. 20,000 of you joined me in 2015 for a week of self-experimentation to see if tweaking our digital habits could, maybe, make us more creative, sleep better, feel more alive. We called the project Bored and Brilliant, and the changes we saw were extraordinary. One guy, Billy in Brooklyn, told me that week made him feel like he was waking up from a mental hibernation. I love that. Here are some of the other things we heard. Bored and Brilliant had a huge impact on my life, having this opportunity to think about how I spend my time and how I can take more time to be bored and let that really be part of my creative process was really valuable. I deleted Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Snapchat, and Vine from my phone in one fell swoop. And it was kind of an embarrassingly emotional experience. I've come to realize that not worrying about those notifications allows me to be more present. And I need to be more present in the work that I do. I ended up writing a book about Bored and Brilliant and what we now call the attention economy, a world where we exchange time with our eyeballs for all those free apps and services. Because here we are, it's just a few years later, and this podcast's obsession with tech on a personal level is mainstream. Tech in all its various forms and its effects on us and society is a hot topic. And that is why, after a year away, I am so pleased that Note to Self is back. Longtime listeners, I will explain more about why we took a break at the end of the show. But first... I want to tell you where we're going with this new season. We're going to start things off by talking about the touchiest, most divisive tech user out there. Kids. Even if you're not a parent, they will be the next generation. So whether they turn out okay is kind of an important topic. I think you'll agree. 
In future episodes, you're going to hear from techies who have had moral epiphanies. I think that the ethos of Silicon Valley has really brainwashed a lot of us. And I was certainly a part of that for a long time. Scholars who have completed groundbreaking research and will share new findings. We can do something like a Wizard of Oz study where a person thinks that they're interacting with a machine, but they're not. Obviously, later we tell them you were interacting with a person in the other room. And thinkers leading the way as we define what our relationship with technology should be. Don't feel obligated to buy into any of these platforms, but don't be afraid of using any one of them as long as you're grounded here in reality. Yeah, we are going to figure out how to stay grounded in reality because Note to Self is the original tech show about being human and we need to keep learning how all things digital from Candy Crush to AI to self-driving cars, how they are changing the way that we think, how we learn, and even what we believe in. And then make sure we take the best of technology and leave behind the worst. So let's get to it. We grown-ups try to teach kids to make good choices about all the screens in their lives, from smartphones to video games. And it's hard because most of us grown-ups kind of suck at making good choices about screens ourselves. But considering that the average American kid gets a smartphone at age 10, yeah, 10, it's pretty clear we need more solid information. And thank goodness, more and more researchers are studying how the web, screen time, all that stuff is affecting children. Kids will tell you that what goes on online is very real to them. But at the same time, they don't estimate the impact the way they would if they were talking to somebody's face. Elizabeth Anglander is a professor of psychology. Her specialty is researching cyberbullying, aggression, and social success. And she runs an organization with an interesting title. What is the Massachusetts Aggression Reduction Center? <laughs> that that name is quite, it's a little bit menacing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's intended to be menacing. <laughs> we help schools deal with all kinds of problems that children may engage in, like bullying and cyberbullying and fighting and other kinds of social conflict. And we also look more generally at social and emotional learning and child development. Of course, we're interested specifically in the digital effects of Mm -hmm. how aggression comes out. But at the end of the day, these kids see each other in school as well. And to them, there's no difference being together in school or being online together. Would you agree with that? Or, Or is there a difference? I would not only agree with that, I can take it even further. The whole concept of cyberbullying or cyberfighting. And there's a fundamental problem with that concept, A lot of the research that's done, it just looks at what kids do online. So, for example, researchers may ask kids if other kids have been cruel to them online or have done something to them online that, you know, might traumatize them. But the problem with that whole approach is it entirely misses the context that kids operate Uh in, which is exactly what you were just talking about. So, for example, let's say that somebody took a photo of you eating your lunch at school Okay, with like a big bite poised to stuff into your mouth. And it was kind of an embarrassing picture. Uh Let's say I sent that around to people and I said, look at this funny picture of Manoush, you know, putting a giant bite of sandwich in her mouth. 
how do you feel about my doing that? And it turns out that one of the most powerful predictors of how someone feels has to do with what's going on with them socially in general, in school and online, not just the online behavior. So just the online behavior itself doesn't predict very well the impact. (sighs) But if I look at a child and I say, are you also having problems in school every day? And the child says, yes, then suddenly I can predict the impact of what happens to them online. So are you saying that, like, if I'm super popular Mm -hmm. and someone posts a picture of me about to take a big bite, then maybe I'd post a response that's like, "Mm mm-mm, yummy, and, like, totally fine with it. That's right. You'd laugh it off. Or maybe it just wouldn't be so intimidating because Mm -hmm. you would just say, well, you know, it's no big deal. On the other hand, if you're having problems, if somebody's picking on you at school or you're fighting with your friends or you're having sort of other kinds of social conflict, then that action, posting that photo or sending it, could be devastating. And this seems to be true in our research, even when problems are really minor. Because they're vulnerable. Exactly. Because they're vulnerable. They're not feeling resilient. They're feeling really vulnerable. So it's misleading to separate out digital behaviors, I think, is exactly right on. And we do far too much of that. And that's the problem even with the word cyberbullying, because just the word sort of implies that it's totally separate somehow. So can I just lay out a scenario that I have seen? We have a neighbor, a girl, and... I sound so naive, but I was pretty shocked. Just uh, Instagram trolling in the comments by Mm -hmm. the girls in her class who I have known since they were four years old and who on the surface, everything seems so fine. And yet I know also that at a slumber party, they stole this this other girl's phone and started texting her mom, pretending to be her and saying, I need you to come get me in the middle of the night. I, I feel awful. Please come get me. I'm crying. Just, again, picking the vulnerable one and just leaning into it. Is it just these are the new tools with which to torture kids who are a little bit vulnerable? Vulnerable, Yeah. Um, Yes and no. I don't think that's the only thing that's going on. So if you do something to somebody face to face or, you know, just in person at school, part of the decision to do that action takes into account how much of an impact your behavior is going to have. And that's kind of an automatic and unconscious process. But what happens with digital technology is that children have a very strong tendency to misestimate and usually underestimate the impact of what they do. This seems to be true even when they themselves have felt the impact. So even if they themselves have been sort of crushed by something that somebody did to them, it's a funny kind of paradox because... Really? This is fascinating. That's why a lot of education today is really aimed at reinforcing for kids how much of an impact these behaviors can have because it's so easy to see that they just don't estimate it. And that's why you see kids who who sort of seem like nice kids, you know, who don't seem like children who would cause this kind of trouble. And you and I stand back as adults and we say, how could you do that? Because to us, the impact of what they're doing is very clear. But to them, 
they don't see the impact in advance of the behavior. So what you're saying is essentially that by using these various digital tools, it just makes it easier to be a jerk, basically, because those tools take out the empathy. I wouldn't say it like that. And here's why I wouldn't. Because if you're being a jerk, then it seems to me the definition of being a jerk is you know you're being a jerk. You're doing it purposefully to hurt somebody. And that does certainly sometimes happen. That you know, There's no doubt about it. That sometimes is part of it. But that's not the whole picture. We're not raising a generation of sociopaths. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that When you use digital technology, if you're not very conscious of this, it's really easy to lose sight of how much what you're doing can impact other people. You know, you don't necessarily have the person right in front of you. You know, you don't see a response. You can be very, very focused on yourself and how you're appearing to your group of friends instead of focusing on how the recipient of the meanness is feeling. Yeah. And, you know, this is all part and parcel of using digital technology. And what we see is that kids get better and better at it as they get older. Mm-hmm. They begin to realize how using a device can cause them to not consider some of the things they would otherwise consider. And what makes all this harder is that a lot of those empathic considerations are kind of automatic. We don't really think about them consciously. Like the whole system is sort of set up in human beings to be kind of unconscious most of the time. And when you say empathic, unconscious behaviors, you're talking about eye contact, listening, body language, those sorts of things? That's definitely part of it. But also part of it is focusing on the person who you're either addressing or who is the the subject or the target. So focusing on that person, looking for their reaction and their response, you know, we are very strongly driven to do that. If you've ever stood face-to-face with somebody and tried to talk to them without looking at them, like purposefully turn away so you're not looking at them but carry on a conversation, it's actually difficult to do. It's really hard to do. You're really driven to look at their face when you talk to them. Yeah. And that's a very striking thing. But in a digital environment, of course, they're nowhere near you and you don't even have their tone of voice. And that whole feedback mechanism is gone. And that's one of the things that people can learn about. They can learn to live with it. They can learn to account for it. But kids are going to have to learn and we're going to have to teach them. It's not something that's just going to happen on its own. How can we help children grow up in this world that we have created, how are we going to help them grow up so that they have really healthy relationships? And that we are struggling in, too, I would add. That's right. But we're the ones who are responsible. I mean, adults are responsible, not the kids. We created this, and there are many good things about it. Vilifying it is not the answer. The answer is to learn how to live with it. The answer is to figure it out. And I have to tell you, Manoush, that I already see signs that kids are beginning to adjust. We see indications and changes, you know, because our research is ongoing. It takes place year after year after year, so we can notice changes in attitudes or behaviors. And we really do see sort of pricks of light that kids are beginning to pick up 
on some of these issues, which is very heartening. Tell, very me, tell heartening. me more. Tell me more. What are you seeing? Like, tell me about these studies, because I love hearing, like, because, you know, when I first started reporting on this stuff, there were no studies. And then they were just the start right. of studies. But here we are starting to get information. What are you finding? I think that the social changes that we're seeing right now with the advent of digital communications, I think the only analogy that I can think of is the Industrial Revolution. Mm. You know, that you have a change that is so profound that it's going to impact almost every single thing about people's lives. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be an adjustment period. And that's what I think we're in right now. I think we're in this adjustment period where we're seeing a lot of the good, but we're not yet controlling the bad. We're not yet learning how to minimize the bad outcomes. For example, if you say to kids, are there times when it's better to talk to somebody face-to-face? And there were always some kids who said yes, but more and more kids now say, yes, if you're angry at somebody, it's better to talk to them face to face. Because Hmm. if you go online and you start texting everybody in the Western Hemisphere, then you're going to make the whole situation worse. So they're beginning to recognize that there's a place and a time. And I don't mean that tech isn't overwhelmingly a part of their lives, but I feel like the first step is for kids to recognize that there are situations in life where you definitely want to get away from screens. I mean, that's amazing to me. Like, I have that problem myself. Like, with my business partner, she'll be like, "Uh, Manoush, I think this is not a texting conversation. This is a phone or (laughs) face-to-face conversation. Like, she has to say it to me. Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. So I do, too. I admire and, that. You know, it's so easy. It is. It is so easy to just keep it short, brief, and non-confrontational, essentially. That's right. But there are definitely circumstances that we know, you know, people do much better. And so if we can teach kids, for example, just, you know, simple, simple rules, simple rules. If you're upset about something and, you know, you don't know what your friend is up to or you don't understand why this person said something to you, then what do you do? Mm. You know, what's a good strategy? And a good strategy is to go to school the next day and talk to people instead of texting everybody or posting online how upset you are. Human beings are very strongly drawn to sort of that feeling of connection. But one of the things that we've done in our research is we've drawn a distinction between the immediate feeling of connection and the overall depth of a relationship. So for example, is it the case that digital technology can make you feel connected in the moment with somebody, but not actually deepen or add to your relationship with that person. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And so you sort of want to pull those two things apart because what seems to happen with social media is that there's sort of a very dopaminergic effect, you know, where you get kind of a rush of good feeling in the moment. And yet it doesn't really add to your overall sense that you have people who really care about you, that you have peers who really care about you. 
so we want to draw those two things apart for kids and make sure they understand that it may feel really good in the moment, and that's fine. But let's talk about strategies to have really good friends who are going to stick with you through thick and thin. Mm. Because that, that's the stuff that makes your life really happier. We have talked mostly about social media so far. Where do games, video mm-hmm. games, fit into this? The research on gaming, generally speaking, suggests that the impact of violent gaming really differs, and it really differs based on what the child's like. Uh So that there are some children who are very strongly affected by aggressive gaming and other children who are not very strongly affected. And those are two different groups of kids. I think that the point, though, that you just made is with all of this, it's so hard to say good or bad or you should do this but don't do that because it really depends on the kid and I think to me that's what parents are so unmoored by they're like just tell us what to do and it's like well it's not that simple right right it is and although there are ways to simplify it I mean that's the first thing to understand which is that a lot of the drama around digital technology that happens when they're 13 14 15 there is a light at the end of the tunnel It's not going to be like that their whole lives. They're not going to be sitting there like texting everyone in the universe and taking 52 selfies a day. You know, it's not what they're going to be like when they're 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Things do change. But also, I think you have to look more at the output and slightly less at the input. So, for example, you say, what are the influence of these things? How are they affecting my child? How much do I have to worry about the games he plays? How much do I have to worry about her taking 52 selfies a day? And I think the best way to judge that, because every child is so different, is to look more at the output. How's your child doing? How are they feeling? Mm -hmm. How are things going for them socially? Do they have friends? Do they feel okay about that? Do they have a variety of activities? They shouldn't be coming home every day after school and playing six hours of Fortnite. That would be bad if they did that every day. They need some variety, and that's for brain health and developmental health. But If you're looking at your child and you're thinking, okay, they're doing okay in school. They seem to be learning. They're not a behavior problem. Their friends seem to be nice kids. They have friends, you know, who they interact with. Then, you know, you're probably doing all right. My business partner, Jen, her son, who is seven, started watching um, videos on YouTube but they, she noticed that every day they seemed like the algorithm was serving up ones that were getting more and more aggressive in their content. Mm-hmm. And they were starting yep. to turn into zombies and killing each other. And then suddenly, this I mean, this sounds like a joke, but it's not. Her seven-year-old only wanted to wear black and um, mm-hmm. started acting a little weird. And she said this happened within the course of a week. And she was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So what was going on there? So that is a classic case, and it's a really good example. You know, you keep your hand right on what's going on. Your antenna are up, and you're noticing that your seven-year-old is beginning to behave in a more peculiar way or react emotionally or have strange requests. And you look, and you notice that the content of what they're doing maybe has changed. Now, when a child is age seven, this isn't that difficult to deal with. Because all you do is you say, you're not going to be watching that anymore. (laughs) No more of that. And that's the end of it. I mean, a seven-year-old, it is not so difficult to control what they're exposed to. You know, a 14-year-old is a different matter. 
once they're becoming older, then you have to start explaining to them that I'm concerned about how you're behaving and I think it's related to what you're doing. And I think what you're doing may be fun at times, but I think it's also making you feel uh, maybe anxious or bad in ways. And I want to talk to you about that and see what's going on. So the whole thing has to be negotiated. I always urge parents to, you know, don't be afraid to, like, call your pediatrician and talk to them about this. Hmm. Pediatricians are more and more sensitized to these issues, and they're going to try to help you if they need to. The other end of the spectrum here, so that's a seven-year-old. I was in an event the other night, and a woman stayed behind to talk to me, and she was just beside herself in tears. Same problem as the Mm -hmm. seven-year-old, but with a 20-year-old who just does not seem interested in life, essentially, and is playing video games to the point where she says she cannot get through to this kid. And, like, I think the question is, is this young man depressed, and therefore that's why he's playing all these games, or did he start playing all these games which made him, therefore, depressed? Like the chicken-egg thing. That's a good question. But actually, at this point in the game, it doesn't matter. So what matters is that something is affecting him. It could be a seasonal depression. Uh It could be that he feels stressed about something that's happening. I don't know what else is going on in his life. But if you have a 20-year-old, then, you know, you have to ask basically two questions. How am I going to help him pull out of this rut? And am I doing anything to perpetuate it? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you would have to ask some hard questions. And then he's got to go and get a psychological evaluation. Now, you can't force a 20-year-old legally. So you could have a 20-year-old and you say, listen, you're in a rut. You're at home in the basement playing video games. You don't, you're not going to school. You don't have a job. We have a problem. And I'm going to take you to a doctor and I want you to begin talking about it. And he could say, I absolutely refuse. And that's like every parent's worst nightmare, right? Because then what are you going to do? And there's no easy answers for that. I wouldn't waste time worrying about what came first. I would just say, if this kid's depressed, then he needs to get professional help. So there's another scenario I have, which hadn't occurred to me. What about kids who are terrible at this social media stuff and who feel completely left out and can't integrate because they can't be part of that world. Is this something that we need to get them to enjoy or be good at because this is the new reality of being a social person in the world? It's a great question, and it is the new reality. But here's all you have to do. You have to avoid the extremes. So on the one hand, you don't want to say to your child, do whatever you like, I don't care. On the other hand, you don't want to say to your child, I am taking everything that has a plug and I'm putting it in the garbage (laughs) and we're going to churn butter after school and that's it. So if you have a child who is not interested in social media, then let them be not interested in social media. It's not going to harm them in any way. And encourage them to pursue other ways of setting up a social situation. For kids, it may feel like the only action that's happening is online. But it's not so hard to demonstrate to them that there's other ways to be social. Set up other activities that they can do or just carve out pockets of time where they can interact with each other without technology. 
So, Elizabeth, this is just perhaps my own, but I've heard other people say this too. When you tell someone, after you've been on a screen, and that could be TV or a laptop or an app, that when you tell someone to turn it off, it's almost like they walked into like a glass sliding door after they turn it off. They're a little bit stunned and a little bit grouchy. Mm-hmm. What is that? Why are we, And I've heard other parents say that too, like, yes, the, for a half an hour after they turn it off, they're such little such and suches. Well, it's very arousing. So it arouses your central nervous system. When your brain is sort of physiologically aroused, it kind of looks around for an explanation for why it feels this way. And sometimes that's positive and sometimes it's negative. Mm. But it's important to remember that these social media systems are sort of set up to reinforce you and keep you going for that little blip. And that's like a great dopaminergic rush. And you're feeling really good. And then suddenly your mom says, put your phone down. It's time to go eat dinner. (laughs) I actually think probably the best way to think about this is to really think about social media and marketing. You know, to think about and talk to kids about what do these people want? You'd be surprised how often kids have told us that all these free social media apps and games and everything, they're all free just because there are nice people in the world who want kids to not be bored. Like, that's why they're there. And it's a very (laughs) innocent, you know, it's a very innocent explanation. It's like, guys, no, you know, they're sucking you in because that's part of their business model. They want your eyeballs on that screen, and they're deliberately kind of manipulating you to try to get you to come back. In my experience, if kids hear that message enough, they will begin to feel differently. Can you tell me about the research that you're most excited about that you're doing um, when it comes to aggression, um, things that maybe we haven't heard about yet? We have a project where we're helping younger children learn how to deal socially and think about how social media affects their lives socially. And, you know, all of this sort of grew out of research that I did last year where we found that third, fourth, and fifth graders were owning devices at such an accelerated rate and that it was related to their social relationships. Wait, why are—I'm sorry. Can you just reset? Why are these kids having phones in third grade? Well, that's a really good question. When you ask the children, why did your parents get you this device? They overwhelmingly say things like, well, my parents wanted to be able to reach me or they wanted it as a safety measure, like if I walk home from school or something like that. And by the way, this was a United States sample that we studied out of five states in the U.S. We compared our American sample to a sample that we studied in South Korea. And the South Korean third graders were more likely to own a cell phone than the American fifth graders. So, like, we're not at the vanguard of this. In the U.S., we're actually a little bit behind some of the other developed countries. So very young children are definitely acquiring devices. I mean, this is sort of an unstoppable, I think, tsunami. It may not be unstoppable, um, but we're going to have to do some parent education where you really think about whether you want to give a child a device to carry around. This is where a lot of my focus is going. But they need, you know, there's certain things like, why do I want my kid to have it? He needs a map. He needs to be able to text. Yeah. I don't want you having, like, the ability to play games all the time. I just don't. And I don't think you need it, frankly. And also, you're going to have to deal with this thing for the rest of your life, dude. Just let me give you a few more months of sanity. (laughs) (laughs) 
But the problem's not going away, see? And I am determined to try to help parents with this because I know that if I can help parents with it, I will help the children. And parents are not indifferent to these issues. You know, they really want their kids to be healthy. They want them to grow up healthy. They want them to have friends. They want them to use technology. You know, they want all these things, Mm -hmm. but there's just not enough out there in terms of sort of practical things that you can use. And so right now, that's one of the more exciting things we're doing is really focusing on that. Dr. Elizabeth Englander, thank you so, so much for talking to me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You hear that, grownups? Be cool. Don't be draconian, but don't be a pushover either. Stay involved, keep learning, and avoid extremes. I actually uh, recently gave a bunch of talks to parents at schools in Silicon Valley, and I asked them, how many of you or someone related to you works in tech? All hands went up. Okay, then I asked, how many of you are worried about your kids and technology? All the hands go up again. I mean, (laughs) I get it. I wrote a book about some of this stuff, and I still struggle with managing my time online. Never mind my kids. All right. One foot forward at a time, folks. One day at a time. We are in this together. All right. I have got lots to tell you here at the end of the show. Stick with me. This is some interesting stuff. Okay. First, as promised, some explaining about why this show hasn't put out a new episode in nearly a year. Here's what happened. Last spring, my executive producer, Jen Poyant, and I decided to leave WNYC to start our own company, We call ourselves Stable Genius Productions. We wanted to keep making note to self. WNYC wanted to find a way too. But it wasn't until Luminary Media came along and asked us to come together and make the show for them that all the pieces fell into place. So, brings us to Luminary. This is now the place where you can find new Note to Self episodes and the entire back catalog. When you subscribe to Luminary, you support this show and all the other amazing podcasts you can find here. Please tell other people that this is where we are and that we are back. Note to Self, rising like a phoenix. Okay, next. You can hear the details of what Jen Poyant, my longtime producer and now co-founder, what we have been up to over the last year. The Missing Year. Uh, You can hear about it on our other podcast, the one that we launched when we left, ZigZag. On the first season of the show, we document our big leap from being public radio producers to media entrepreneurs and all the freakouts that came along with trying to start a business, maintain our creative partnership, and see our families. And now on ZigZag, Jen and I are taking an honest look at the culture of business and what needs to change. We are still super upfront about our own struggles to build our own business, and we investigate how other founders and creators are resisting that winners-take-all mindset and how they're redefining success for themselves and society. We are asking whether it is possible to build businesses and careers that do more than just make money, but actually improve our collective well-being. Because we found that lots of people, maybe you, are rethinking what success looks like. Listen and be part of a new movement to chart a kinder, sustainable, and collective path forward for work and life. Zigzag. After you listen to Note to Self, come join us there. Okay, wait. Last thing to tell you. We have a new and improved newsletter. It is excellent. 
Every week or so, you will get a note from me with links to all the stuff I mention here on the show, information about events that we're doing or we think you should know about, and tips for navigating all the personal and global change in your life. Please go to our website, stableg.com, to sign up. That's S-T-A-B-L-E-G.com. If you email us at note-to-self at stableg.com, we will give you our concierge service and do the newsletter signing up for you. That's note-to-self at stableg.com. Yay! Note-to-self is back. I am so pleased. Thank you for listening. The Note-to-Self team is me, Jen Poyant, Marcy Thompson, Matt Boynton, David Herman, and Anya Zizek. Many thanks to Kieran Kay, too. Note to Self comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with WNYC Studios and Luminary Media. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. God, that poop emoji, they just go crazy for it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>